We'll hear argument next in case 06-1509, Bulwar versus United States. Mr. Klein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress placed the phrase with respect to its stock in Section 301A of the Internal Revenue Code to make clear that the taxation rules in Section 301C do not apply to corporate payments that a shareholder receives in a non-shareholder capacity. May may I ask you a a question which is going to come up sooner or later, and it's kind of a threshold question, so if if I may, let me interrupt you with it now. You you emphasize the the significance of the limiting condition with respect to the stock. But before you get to that phrase, um, Section 301 refers to a distribution by the corporation. And my question is this. Let's assume that we... We, we accept your, your, your position that the circuit was wrong in requiring uh, an offer of, of proof of uh, in intent to return capital. Isn't it also the case uh, that you would still have an obligation, uh, if you're going to take advantage of, of this section, to offer some evidence with respect to the fact that there was a corporate distribution involved? Uh, and as I understand it, um, your evidence uh, is, or the government's evidence and yours is, that, you know, there was skimming, there was misdirection, etc. But there was no indication, there's no evidence uh, that there was any distribution uh, in the normal sense of that word by a corporation. So it seems to me that if you, if you win the case in the sense of convincing us that the circuit was wrong with respect to the specific intent requirement, you would still be left without a defense because you have not come forward with any evidence that indicates a distribution. Am, am I wrong? Yes, Your Honor, I, b- I believe I you are. I you were going to say. I- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, although I agree that the, that the question of a distribution is important, and I think implicit in that, question, in that term, although the courts have not addressed it, is some sort of corporate action. Where you have a controlling shareholder, as we do here with Mr. Bulware, who's a 50 percent chair owner, he's the president, he's the founder, he dominates this company. His action is action on behalf of the corporation. Well, it certainly can be, and there's no question about that. But isn't there some point of informality uh, or or some point, I guess, of of formality or or relevance to corporate practice that has to be reached? Uh, In other words, he may keep lousy books, uh, he may be very sloppy, but directing funds to one's girlfriend uh, is, is not the act of a corporation. Uh, and uh, it, it seems to me that the kind of, of, um, uh, of actions that he took to get or to direct the, the, the payment of monies could not by any stretch of the imagination be regarded as an act of this corporation or of any corporation. With respect, Justice Souter, Justice Souter I, I disagree. Um, there are, um, I've discovered, uh, hundreds of corporate diversion cases uh, involving a very similar fact pattern and a very similar fact pattern to this, where you have a corporation that is really the creature of one person. It, it's formed by one person. Uh, he, he chose the corporate form, but in effect, he is the corporation. That's the case with Mr. Bulware, and it's the case in a lot of these diversion cases. And well, in, the, in this case, he's a 50 percent owner, as I understand it. He formed the corporation, but isn't 50 percent of the stock owned by the trust for the love child of, of, of him and the girlfriend? It, it, it is indeed, um, although it, it's important to keep in mind that the, the, um, the girlfriend according to the government's evidence, received uh, a, a very large chunk of this money. So, in effect, what we have here is, is a situation where you not only have a 50 percent shareholder who dominates the corporation, the other 50 percent, the trustee for the other 50 percent shareholder, is the recipient of the money and is certainly knowledgeable about uh, most, if not all, of what's going on. Um, but in these circumstances where you have a close corporation typically run very informally, as this one was, with one person who dominates it. The courts have, have uniformly taken the view that the tax court has, and, and for that matter, the government has in, in every case except, except this one, that when the controlling dominant shareholder takes money from his corporation, that's a distribution by the corporation. And although, Your Honor, I had thought about this question myself before you raised it, the cases don't pause on that issue. They, they move directly to the question of whether it's taken in some other capacity as, as compensation, for example, or as a loan. But well, perhaps because the, because the government 
uh, might very well be on the other side of that question. That is, the dominant shareholder takes money from the corporation, gives it to his girlfriend, and the government is saying that corporation had earnings and profits. We want to tax this as a dividend to you. Well, yes, Justice Ginsburg, the way this often comes up, the, the, the government usually takes the opposite position yes. of what it's taking here. It usually takes our position. And, and here's the reason why. First of all, a lot of times, as in this case, some of the money that is coming toward the corporation is intercepted by the controlling shareholder. And the question then is, was it ever income to the corporation? Well, of course, the government wants to say that it was, because they want to tax it twice, at the corporate level and then again at the individual level. And, and the, the issue there, again, is one of control. If it's the controlling shareholder, even though he gets the money before it ever hits the corporate bank account, it's considered income to the corporation. Um, it also uh, uh, comes up when the corporation wants to claim a theft deduction or an embezzlement deduction. That, again, is a, is a common fact pattern in these cases. The, the corporation, everything comes to light. The IRS conducts its investigation. Now the corporation wants to avoid its tax. Sure, the individual is going to get taxed, but it wants to avoid its tax. And so it claims uh, that there was a, a theft or an embezzlement by the, by the shareholder, and it's entitled to a deduction and shouldn't have to pay tax on that money. And, and again, the government uniformly takes the position that a controlling shareholder, such as Mr. Bulware, can't embezzle from his own corporation, um, which is essentially the position that we're taking here. That well, it may be that he cannot embezzle in the sense that uh, of committing a, a, a separate private act uh, or even a separate, uh, a separate tort that the corporation could object to. But the question uh, still remains, uh, <coughs> excuse me, whether the, the act of, of, of taking the money in this unorthodox way could be regarded as a corporate act within the meaning of the term distribution. And I think I understand your point, but I, I guess the only point that I'm making is the fact that it may not qualify as embezzlement uh, civilly or criminally does not necessarily answer the objection that I'm raising. I, I agree with that point, Justice Souter. Uh, one other point I would emphasize, though, is that I think if you, if, if you start to say that, that an act by the controlling shareholder, such as Mr. Bulware, does not constitute a distribution by his corporation, there are going to be unintended consequences of that, one of which is that in a situation where a controlling shareholder, such as Mr. Bulware, intercepts money coming into the corporation, you're going to have the corporation coming in and arguing that that interception, that taking in of, of money, yeah. wasn't an act of the corporation. Yeah. And so there's no income to us. And, and I think that's why the courts, in, in a whole series that explains of, why I'm making the argument and the government wasn't in its, in its brief. I, I think it does. Um, but it, but, but you, you did say something about the interception that, I mean, your, your argument is that this corporation had no earnings and profits so what the shareholder got was a return of capital. But part of what was involved was he was taking, um, I thought, receipts for goods that customers were had paid and giving them to the girlfriend. In determining whether that corporation had any earnings and profits, wouldn't you have to credit the corporation. In other words, did you prove that there was no that there were no earnings and profits? You would have to you would have to prove that, wouldn't you? The, the way I believe it would work in, in with a properly instructed jury in the district court is as follows. I think Mr. Bulware would have the burden of coming forward with some evidence that the corporation did not have earnings or profits and that his basis exceeded the amount of the diversion. I think at that point, if he comes forward with some evidence, and, and Bach talks about this, Leonard talks about this. For which purpose you, you'd include the receipts? I beg your pardon? That for which purpose you would include the receipts that he uh, 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 sent to his girlfriend instead of putting it in the corporate treasury? Your Honor, I believe that is correct, but I'm not certain. Um, the, the, the what I can say about earnings and profits and basis as well is this. It is a very complicated um, uh, uh, calculation. 
And I think it would be hotly disputed in the district court. I would expect the government to argue that the company did have earnings and profits and that Mr. Bullware's basis is less than he contends it is. I think it would ultimately be a question of fact for the jury. I, I was uh, wanted to know, is there uh, in the record the corporation balance sheet? It was frankly hard for me to believe that this was not an excessive basis. So you don't usually capitalize corporations for $10 million. But uh, I, I don't have any basis other than just an assumption to make that observation. Is the corporate balance sheet uh, with the capital structure in the record? I, I don't believe so, Your Honor. But, but what is in the record, and it's also in the joint appendix, um, is the fairly sketchy evidence of both basis and earnings and profits that was introduced, that there was not a full presentation on those issues. Was it introduced by the government or by the defendant? It, it came in um, — I must say, it came in more or less by happenstance, because neither party was really looking at the question of earnings and profits or basis, because the the trial court had ruled those out. But, for example, on cross-examination, I believe, of of Mr. Bulware's accountant, um, this is at page 42 of the joint appendix, uh, Mr. Bulware's lawyer elicited that the corporation had not had earnings and profits uh, during the years in question. Now, that was not explored at all, uh, but there is that statement in the record. There's also — I'm sorry, Your I'm not, I'm not sure if uh, what the government is maintaining here is so prejudicial to its position in other cases, which was the earlier discussion we were having. Uh, here there's simply nothing uh, on the corporate records to show that this was a distribution with respect to, to stock. And I don't, I don't care whether it's earnings and profits or, or an excessive basis. There's, there's just no indication that it was a distribution with respect to stock. And you have two shareholders. And under Hawaiian law, can you make a, um, a, a disproportionate um, uh, distribution to shareholders? One person gets capital back, the other doesn't, and there's no redemption of shares? I, I think it is entirely possible that under Hawaiian law, a minority shareholder uh, or a non-controlling shareholder who was treated unfairly by the controlling shareholder might have a, a cause of action under state law. Um, but but that, that was that was the qualification that the Second Circuit made in its D'Agostino case, which is to say that if there's a violation of corporate law, then, then our rule doesn't apply. Well, I, I, except, Your Honor, that, that the way these cases have played out is that in, in there are numerous cases, dozens of them, where there are minority shareholders, oftentimes unwitting of what the majority shareholder is doing. And those minority shareholders certainly have rights. They can, they can sue under state law. They can do a number of things. But, but their rights and the possible violation of their rights, and I emphasize possible because no one's ever established that Mr. Bulware did anything wrong with respect to anyone here, those don't drive the federal tax treatment. Um, well, but that's the whole point. Uh, if the, the fact that he doesn't show this as a distribution indicates that he couldn't do this under federal law, so it must be something uh, under state law, so it must be something other than a distribution. I, I think, Your Honor, that where the controlling shareholder of a corporation does something with corporate funds, and, and in this case transfers them to himself, I think that's a distribution. And I, I think that it is properly treated under federal law, under federal tax law, for purposes of federal tax law, as a distribution by the corporation. I'm less concerned with the, with the word distribution in the statute uh, than I am with the phrase, with respect to its stock, distribution made by a corporation to a shareholder with respect to its stock. Now, the, the, uh, the court below held that there had to be a conscious uh, uh, intent to return capital. Even if I disagree with that and think that that was wrong, uh, isn't the government right that it nonetheless is, is the burden uh, um, uh, to establish that the distribution here was a distribution with respect to stock, and the distribution was given to the girlfriend who owns no stock in the corporation. How, how does it become a distribution with respect to stock? Well, Your Honor, that gets back to where I, to where I began my argument. The, the, the phrase with respect to stock has never received in any case or any argument, as far as I know, the significance that the government is trying to accord it here. What that phrase, it, it was put in the 1954 code, and the, the purpose of putting it in, in the code was simply to distinguish transfers to shareholders in a capacity where the shareholder is effectively returning consideration, shareholder employees, shareholder vendors, shareholder creditors, where — Or girlfriends. No. I mean, why, you know, why doesn't it distinguish a girlfriend as, as, as much as it distinguishes an employee who's uh, receiving back a loan? 
Because the issue, Your Honor, is, is not the, the recipient of the, of the funds. I mean, the, the money is going to be taxed to Mr. Bulware if it's, if it's taxable, regardless of where he diverted it. For example, there, there are, again, dozens of these cases where controlling shareholders divert corporate assets to their family members. And the issue is whether it's a constructive dividend to that uh, corporate shareholder. Here the question, regardless of where Mr. Bulware sent them. And the government would say yes. Absolutely. The government in every case says yes. They're, yeah, they're, they're really — <laughs> They're really be, between a rock and a hard place. Well, because, Your Honor, they want, they want the controlling shareholder, the person in Mr. Bulwer's situation, to pay tax. And, of course, in most cases, in most cases, again, it's to the government's advantage to argue the position that we're arguing here. And the reason is most corporations have earnings and profits. Most shareholders don't have enough basis to cover their tax. And so the government wants to hit it at both levels. It wants the corporate tax and it wants the individual tax. And so it — it argues readily that this is a distribution with respect to stock. The, the, um, that phrase was, was put in the 1954 code to distinguish one capacity from another. The government has uh, argued that it should receive um, some sort of a, of a causal type meaning. It should, there should be a causal link. Uh, the, Mr. Bulware should have to establish that he received uh, the stock because he was a shareholder. If that's the standard, first of all, it's a different standard than what the District Court of the Ninth Circuit required Mr. Bulware to meet. So he ought to have a chance to satisfy the standard. Second, that standard doesn't necessarily require any form of intent. There's nothing in the phrase with respect to stock that talks about intent. We, we don't — this may be the point you've just made, but I want to clarify. We don't have to decide whether this diversion was with respect to stock because you put that in issue and you weren't allowed to make that Absolutely, Your Honor. What, what, it, I suppose it would be open on remand for the government to argue it was not with respect to stock for the reasons that have come out, that it was just a diversion? The, the, the government could argue that, but, Your, Mr. Chief Justice, I have to say I You're would, pretty sure they won't. I would be astounded if they took that position, because it would be so contrary to the position they take in every other case. Um, but, but to get back to your basic point, yes, Mr. Bulware was asked to meet a standard that no one defends in this court. The government isn't here defending the intent to have a return of capital standard. And part of the reason they don't defend it is it, it's an impossible concept. You don't know if you have a return of capital until you know if you have a dividend, and you don't know that until, until the, the end of the tax year. What about the, the government did say that this accountant, what was his name, Manango or something like Monica, that, yes. testified at the trial that there was no return of capital in the relevant years. What Mr. Monago testified to is that there weren't any payments out of the capital account, and that's undisputed. But that's not the question. Th those sorts of corporate formalities are not determinative or even particularly helpful in these constructive dividend uh, types of cases. Well, on, on the government's intent test, I, I suppose if you have a calendar year and the distribution's made in June, uh, that the government could say, well, we want to show, <coughs> we want you to show that there was an intent to D uh, make a distribution with respect to stock at that time, whether or not it was a, a, a dividend, whether or not it was a return of capital, we won't know until the end of the year. I suppose they could try to argue that. That is what they're arguing. Uh, two things about that, Justice Kennedy. First, that's not the standard Mr. Bulware was required to meet in the district court. The standard there was intent that it be a return of capital. And that's a different thing than an intent that it be with respect to stock. An intent that it be a return of capital suggests that you you know what a return of capital is. You know about earnings and profits. You know about basis. And I can tell you that Mr. Bulware, who is an unsophisticated man, didn't know any of those things at the time. And so, of course, he couldn't meet the standard he was required to meet. If this court were to agree with the government. You, you, you mean to say the government can't argue that uh, this, uh, the defendant has to show that it was an, uh, a distribution with respect to stock and that that was his intent? Whether or not it's a dividend, whether or not it's a return of capital, we wait. I don't think that's the right standard, but even if this Court decides that it is, that's not the standard Mr. Bulware was required to meet in the trial court. He was required to show an intent that it be a return of capital, and he couldn't meet that standard. If this Court were to decide, and I suggest it would be the wrong standard, but if this Court were to decide that the correct standard were an intent that it be with respect to stock, Mr. Bulware could meet that standard. He was never given the opportunity to meet it before, but he could meet that if this Court were to decide that that was the standard. In the sense that he could certainly show that to the extent he got this money personally, he got it because he was a stockholder, and he knew he was getting it because he was a stockholder. But he, he never had a chance to, to meet that standard because it wasn't the standard that the government urged in the trial court or even before the panel on appeal. Uh, 
Unless the Court has further uh, questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Klein. Ms. Maynard. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In the government's view, to make a sufficient proffer of a return of capital defense, a defendant must point to some factual evidence to support three elements. First, that there was a distribution with respect to stock. Second, that the corporation lacked earnings and profits during the relevant tax years. And third, that the defendant had a sufficient basis in his stock to cover the funds received. The question before this Court relates to the first element. The Court below didn't give him a chance. No, Your Honor. To establish that. The, the, The Court below required him to show an intent to distribute capital. And, and the government here believes that the correct test is the, the rule of the Ninth Circuit, Your Honor. The government believes that before a defendant may present a return of capital defense to the jury, there must be some evidence that the corporation intended, as objectively inferred from all the facts and circumstances, to make a distribution with respect to its stock at the time the funds were taken. But if it turned out that there were earnings and profits and everything else was the same, would the government be taking the position that the proper test is, was this a distribution with respect to stock? In, in every case, Your Honor, the, the question about whether or not the Section 301 tax treatment uh, applies, the government believes that it turns on all the facts and circumstances and that there must be some facts and circumstances suggesting that it was a distribution with Suppose respect to the government, the corporation is rich with earnings and profits. Would the government be saying, oh, aha, but we have to go through the motions of first seeing, was this uh, distribution um, with respect to stock? I thought that the idea of was it a distribution with respect to stock refers to was it, uh, was the corporation, was there to be any quid pro quo? That is, the shareholder gets money from the corporation. Is the shareholder expected to pay it back? Or is it just that it comes out of the corporation into the shareholder's pocket with no expectation by the corporation to get it back? I thought that that's what with respect to stock means, instead of with respect to salary, with respect to loan. And that's what I thought was the understanding of the term. Am I wrong about it? That is half of the understanding of the term. I do think it is, as Petitioner says, a term of art. There are two parts to the term of art with respect to stock, Your Honor. It is, as you say, uh, uh, funds that you receive without consideration, but it is also funds that you receive solely because of your status as a shareholder. But the that gov- was uh, — we're just not on the same page here. Uh, uh, that's not what the, the, the decision you're defending uh, said. The decision you're defending did not say that it was incumbent on the defendant to show that it was with respect to stock. They said it was incumbent on the defendant to show that it was intended to be a return of capital. Well, that's That's just a wholly different issue, and and it seems to me the best you can get out of of this case, the way you're arguing it, is a remand for them to apply the proper test. In, in, I think the, the test that I'm articulating is the Ninth Circuit's test in this, in this circumstance, Your Honor. In Miller, which is the genesis of the Ninth Circuit's test, the Court said, and this is on page 545 at 1214, we therefore conclude that whether diverted funds constitute constructive corporate distributions, and that would include dividends, return of capital, or capital gain, depends on the factual circumstances involved in each case under consideration. And then it went on to say, before a defendant could proffer a defense of return of capital, the taxpayer had to make some demonstration that the, such distributions were intended to be such a return of capital. But it depends on what you mean by that. The Ninth Circuit says, quote, about what he has to show, that he has to show not merely that the funds could have been a return of capital, but that the funds were in fact a return of capital at the time of transfer. And they go on to say, since there was no evidence that they were considered, intended, or recorded on the corporate records as a return of capital at the time they were made, then it isn't a return of capital. 
I thought everybody thinks that's wrong, because you might have an absolute distribution that absolutely counts as a distribution to every shareholder in the corporation, and at the time they all think the company's going to make a billion dollars, but it just turns out that they have a loss of a billion dollars, in which case at the end of the tax year that would count as a return of capital if the basis were high enough, and it would not count as a dividend. Am I wrong? No, you may not know at the time the funds are taken right, whether or not so they are if return we of capital. Do not know, that's the end of the Ninth Circuit test, isn't it? Because the Ninth Circuit test says what we want to do is to look at the books at the time of the distribution and see if it is entered on those books as a return of capital. That's how I read it. If you, it, it, it would be more accurate to say, at the time, was it intended, as objectively manifested from all the facts and circumstances, to be a distribution? No, no, it was not. What they thought at the time they distributed it was fabulous dividend, because we're going to be rich. But it, My example was they just made a little mistake. Instead, the corporation is close to bankrupt, so there are no earnings or profits. Is it then a return of capital or not? It could be a return of capital depending on the person's stock. Yeah, the basis. He has more than enough basis. But, but, he has $14 trillion basis, okay? But, <laughs> so there's no problem about that. But here he, the, the defendant. Right. Now, so it is a return of capital. So therefore, the test is wrong. It would be a return. But the point, Your Honor, is that the test is whether or not at the time the funds were taken, the corporation intended to be making a distribution with respect to its stock. Well, aren't you, aren't you saying not that the, that the test of intent that the Ninth Circuit used uh, is in itself a sufficient test, but that rather — correct me if I'm wrong, because I thought this was the basis, really, of your argument. I thought the government, in effect, was saying — in order to treat it as a return of capital, it is a necessary condition that it be intended uh, to be treated as a return of capital. But that is not a sufficient condition, because if, in fact, it turns out, as in Justice Breyer's example, that there are no earnings, then under 301 it can't be treated uh, as, uh, as, as a dividend, and only then, under 301, would it be treated as a return of capital? So the conditions are, number one, necessary intent. Number two, a determination at the end of the year that, in fact, uh, there, there were no earnings. Conversely, if at the end of the year there are profits, even though the first necessary condition, intent, was satisfied, under 301 that would not be enough, and the government would treat it as income. Isn't that the nub of your position? If it were with respect to stock and there were yeah, entering yeah. profits, then it would then, be yeah. income. I doubt that. Then, then, then you would say when it is not a criminal prosecution for failure to pay taxes, uh, so long as somebody, when they take the money, uh, uh, intended to be a return of uh, dividends, it does not become a return of capital. Are you sure you're willing to live with that intent requirement? If at the time the corporation made a distribution, Your Honor, is it important for for the tax treatment that at the time of the distribution it be intended to be either a return of capital or dividends? Does that make the difference as to whether you're going to be able to tax it or not? It, it depends in all cases, in both criminal and civil cases, and, and that, to that extent the government doesn't agree with the Ninth Circuit's reasoning. In all cases, whether or not something gets the tech tax treatment set forth in 301A depends on whether or not it's a distribution with respect to stock. Well, we're not, I'm not, we're not talking about distribution. Okay, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. We're talking about the intent that it be a return of capital or not. It, if, it, if the government, if it was intended at the time it was paid out to either be a dividend or a return of capital or a capital gain, either one. that would be enough to satisfy the with respect to It would be anything at all. Here, so, in other words, there is no preliminary requirement that you intend that it be a return of capital. You, right. So if the Court of Appeals said that here, it was wrong. I think if, if the Court chooses to read their test that rigidly, I don't believe that the petitioner understood it that way. Well, hi, let me — I just want to get clear on how you understand it. I gave you one alternative in which you defend the Ninth Circuit, 
Justice Scalia has given you another alternative in which you don't defend the Ninth Circuit. Which, which are you going to take? Um, I must not understand. That there, are th- there are three elements. I want to make clear there's an additional element, Your Honor, to the defense than the two that you laid out. The, the, also, the, the taxpayer must have a sufficient basis in his stock to cover the amount of the diverted funds for it to be retreated as a return. Can, can I try a third example? Because I, I think an example might help. Let us imagine that the company distributes $10,000 on June 1 to every shareholder. Let us imagine that every shareholder has a basis of a trillion dollars in his stock. There's no problem about basis. There's no problem about the nature of the distribution. Let us imagine they put in the corporate records on June 1, this is a very valuable corporation. We're going to make a fortune. And this is a dividend. They write it down. Now, unfortunately, four weeks later, the bottom falls out of the market, and it is not a dividend for the reason that they have no profits that year. Now, is it not under ordinary tax law a return of capital? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. If he had that, been- once you say yes, then the Ninth Circuit must be wrong because the Ninth Circuit said we do not look to see what happened. If that's a how month later, we look just to see how it's characterized by the corporation at the moment of the transfer. If one reads the Ninth Circuit's test that rigidly, well, that's what they perhaps say. that would be right. Yeah. But I believe if one looks back to Miller, you can see that the Ninth Circuit is talking about whether or not it was a constructive distribution. Yeah, but why talk about that at all? I mean, on Justice Breyer's third and simplest example, he's basically saying — let Section 301 make the determination, in effect, at the end of the year when we know what the actual situation of the corporation is. If you wait and see, 301 takes care of it, and you don't have to get into the sort of the, 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 the metaphysics of intent. Well, there's a threshold requirement to 301 treatment, Your Honor. If, yeah, if, distribution, the, with res, distribution with respect to stock. Right, I mean, I, I think he was assuming and I'm assuming that uh, that, that — that uh, condition is met. I but see. in order to meet that condition, you don't have to have a specific intent that the dist- on the part of the corporation that the distribution either be a return of capital or that the distribution either be a dividend. It simply has to be a distribution to this guy because he is a stockholder. That's right, Reiner. We agree with that. Okay. If he had testified here that he believed he was receiving a dividend, at the time he took these funds. We believe that would be sufficient to meet the threshold requirement. He wants a chance to argue that. He was not given a chance to argue. I believe you can tell from his proffer, Your Honor, that he understood his test was to show that these were intended to be some sort of constructive distributions. Was there his anything in the tax court at all that used the words as having any significance for this determination, whether there was a tax evasion here? With respect to its stock, was there any uh, any hint that those words were controlling? In the Ninth Circuit? In the tax court originally. Was this — this was in the tax court? No, Your Honor. This is a criminal criminal case. Yeah. Um, Okay. In the trial court first. In in — the rule has been clear in, this, in the Ninth Circuit since 1976 that you had to make a showing that there was an intent at the time the monies were paid to make a, a constructive distribution. So, no, there was no need to go back to first principles and argue where in the statute that rule was grounded. But the government has made this argument. It made it in seeking en banc rehearing in D'Agostino in 1998. So this is not a new argument. When, when the issue was reopened and they saw en banc review, the government made the I ask you sort of an elementary stupid question. <clears throat> what is the government's theory as to what this money was? Is it the theory that it was a dividend or there was salary? There, the government's theory of the case, Your Honor, but I'd like to step back and explain it after I tell you what it was. The government's theory of the case was that this money was stolen from the corporation. But in a criminal case, in order to show a tax deficiency for purposes of tax evasion or well, — Your theory, just to be sure, it was not salary, it was not a dividend, it was the proceeds of an embezzlement or step. That was as we argued it to jury, Your Honor. But there's no need in, for the government to characterize in a tax — for purposes of a criminal case, this Court's decision in Holland makes clear that in order to prove the tax deficiency element of a tax evasion case or here a false statement uh, with respect to income for the false return counts, the government need prove only two things. 
One, that the defendant received a substantial amount of funds that he did not report on his income taxes. And two, that the funds came from a likely source of taxable income. It does and not have to prove that it was income. It has to prove that it came from a likely source of taxable income. And we prove that here, Your Honor. A, I just want to be sure I have the right answer. You do not have to prove that it was income. That is a proof of, that it's income. We don't have to label what type of income it is. But it is income to, it's income to him. You would be taking a different position uh, if you thought you could attribute it to the corporation and tax the corporation, too. It, uh, the fact that it, it's income to him, you'd, you'd may, it may or may not be income to the corporation. We also believe it was income to the corporation. Right. And if you want to go after the corporation, you're specifically going to take the position in this guy's case that, in fact, it was income to the corporation. If there's no income to the corporation, then you don't care. And that's the situation you're in here. It, it was income to the corporation, Your Honor, even here. He, it was, well, it was supposed, not profit. should have been income taxable. to the corporation. It was and not taxable it, income. Yes, it should no have been. Profit. Yes, Your Honor. It should have been taxable income to the corporation. This income that was coming to the corporation that he diverted before it hit the corporate, in lots of instances, before it hit the corporation's books. In other instances, he took monies from the corporation and put them to his personal use. Under your response to Justice Stevens, uh, once you show that it was uh, from a likely source of income and that he received it, it was unreported, (laughs) then it's the uh, defendant's burden to go ahead and show show this was a um, 301 distribution, uh, that I had a, a basis that absorbed it, or that there were no earnings and profits. So that's all for the defendant. You the government that. the government retains the ultimate burden of proof at all times, Your Honor, to prove well, the did, only the court, did, the court didn't let the uh, uh, taxpayer submit evidence. He came forward and said, look, there's an issue here. This might be a return of capital. And I would have thought at that point the burden shifted to you. I, again, That bur- having met that burden of production, or at least tried to, the burden would shift to you to show, no, it's, it's not a return of capital, it's a dividend. Here, he's, in order to make, the, to make out a case, to be allowed to present a defense to the jury, Your Honor, that the funds are non-taxable, the defense must have some basis in fact. And here, he proffered nothing to show that this was well, a dividend said, or a return said, of capital at the time. He said in his proffer that he would present expert testimony that this, uh, the corporation didn't have profits and earnings, and therefore it was a return of capital. And the, the district court said, no, you don't get to do that. Um, in his, I think, if, you know, this is his proffer, the relevant portion is in the JA on page 97. Right. And it says, alternatively, the expert will explain that if the monies were not loans or advances, or if Boulware did not use the monies for corporate purposes, then as the controlling shareholder, the monies could be deemed a constructive return, a constructive dividend or return of capital to Boulware, which may or may not be income, depending on whether or not HIE, the corporation, had earnings and profits for the years when the monies were obtained by Boulware. That's all he proffered. An expert who would testify that it could have been either dividends, Justice Breyer, or a return of capital. So he did realize No, no, and the district court, the district court said that's not relevant. It's not, re- it's not relevant whether they could be classified as dividends. I'm quoting from your brief on page 8. It is not relevant whether the funds could have been classified as a return of capital or a dividend at the time when they were diverted. Because, he said, what was relevant is, whether, is the intent, whether they were in fact treated as a return of capital. That's right, Your Honor. And our position is that in both civil and criminal cases, before something can be treated under the tax treatment in 301C, it must meet 301A, which requires that under all the facts and circumstances, it in fact be a distribution, either a dividend or a return of capital. And all his proffer testifies, said, all his proffer offered is that it theoretically could be deemed a dividend or could I, be maybe, deemed a return Maybe of he was simply getting at the fact that under 301, uh, assuming the, the, the possibilities of, of, of non-301 treatment are excluded, under 301, it will be treated either uh, as a dividend or as a return of capital, depending on, on the corporate books for that year. Uh, and he wasn't making a proffer at that point precisely as to what those corporate books would show, but he was making a proffer that under 301, it would either be classified as a dividend or as a return of capital. Uh, and, and wasn't that enough uh, to, 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 to get, him, uh, get him the right to introduce the evidence? No, Your Honor. In our view, 301A, the language with respect to its stock, 
and the regulations have so interpreted it, and the legislative history makes clear that it was added to the 1954 Code specifically to show that before distributions can receive that treatment, regardless of what the facts are about the EMP and regardless of what the facts are about the basis, it has to have been a corporate distribution with respect to the stock. Well, but if he is making a proffer saying it depends upon whether or not there's adequate earnings or not, isn't he plainly saying that that means it's with respect to my stock? Because if he were getting it, for example, as an employee for consideration, it wouldn't matter whether there were sufficient earnings or not. But when he says it depends on whether there's sufficient earnings, it seems to me that that's clearly notifying you that he's saying it was respect with respect to his stock. This proffer also has factual proffers in it, Your Honor, and none of the factual proffers go to the fact that it was with respect to stock. The petitioner testified. He, he said, well, it seems to me this is enough to put you on notice. Bulware will present further evidence that all of the alleged unreported income was either a loan or advance or was used by Bulware for corporate purposes or for the benefit of HIE. But, now, but for he, corporate purposes would, would include either return of capital or a dividend, uh, payment out to shareholders. No, Your Honor. No, Your Honor, it wouldn't. For corporate purposes, and he testified here, and he testified as to those three things. He testified that he thought the monies were always corporate monies. In other words, that he'd been given them to use them to buy coffee and do other things that were for the corporation. He testified that alternatively he thought they were loans to him and that he was going to repay them. And alternatively he thought that they were corporate advances to him. The jury was instructed on all those things and rejected them in convicting him. But he did not testify that he thought he was being paid a dividend. He did not testify that he thought he was being paid a return of capital. And the reason he proffered an expert is because he doesn't believe there is this first element of the defense at bottom that the government believes that there is. And that in 301A's threshold requirement with respect to stock, if, and if you trace back the civil cases and the basis in the D'Agostino rule is based on civil cases interpreting the old code. Tell me about the civil case. <clears throat> there would be a tax deficiency. And wouldn't the government have to say what were the elements of the tax deficiency? You said in a criminal case they don't have to characterize it at all. They just said he got uh, he has money on which tax hasn't been paid and there was a likely source of income. But now you're in a deficiency mold, and the government asserts a deficiency. Doesn't it have to say what the elements of the deficiency are? And what would it say in this case? Well, it, in this case, the government's position at bottom is that he stole these funds. But, that, but in the criminal case, it didn't need to characterize it. I think in, if I can take a common criminal, a common civil situation, Your Honor, where a corporation comes in and tries to deduct a salary that it pays to its controlling shareholder and, or to, say, the spouse of the controlling shareholder who's also a shareholder. And the services that that person has provided, and the corporation has called it a salary and deducted it as necessary business expenses. And the service comes in and says, that's, we're going to disallow that deduction. And then that's litigated in the tax court. In that situation, the government does often argue that that, the excess, you know, that say this person at home is providing $10,000 in bookkeeping services to the corporation, when in fact, um, in net value of, net worth, fair market value of $10,000 of services, but being paid $500,000. And the corporation is deducted as a necessary business expense of $500,000. The, the issue in that case will turn on whether or not there was an intent to compense for services, whether or not the services are reasonable. And the government may well Let's come in and say — Let's take this case. Let's take this case and not some hypothetical. And we're on the civil side. The government is asserting a deficiency. Just change one thing. The corporation is rich with earnings and profits. What would the notice of deficiency say? You know, I, 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 to be honest with you, Your Honor, I, I don't know, but the — Wouldn't the government want to take the position that this is a dividend and not something else, if that were the case, the if government, there were earnings and profits? The government might want to take that position, Your Honor. In the, in the facts of this case, the government's position is they stole these funds. But in a hypothetical situation like this case, if the government wanted to take the position, it is our view here, and certainly if you adopt the rule that we're arguing for, that 301A — that there must be — the facts and circumstances must suggest that the monies were taken out with respect to the stock because of the person's status. Mr. Maynard, let me just go back to your hypothetical for a second. 
in the closely held corporation situation you described where they pay a huge salary to the wife of the president and they decide you can't deduct that, that's really a dividend. That's, that's what the government normally does in that situation. And don't they decide it's a dividend irrespective of the intent of the company making the distribution? Well, in that situation, so the express no on the part of them with, to satisfy the with respect to Scott, uh, stock requirement. Well, the expressed intent, Your Honor, is belied by all the facts and circumstances. I mean, just to be clear, the government's arguing for an objective test yeah, here. But the only judge- fact and circumstance in your hypothetical is they paid them a million dollars when they only earned a hundred thousand. Right, and that's clearly with respect to stock. Yes, regardless sir. of intent. No, Your Honor. The, the, all the facts and circumstances would show that the expressed intent was not the actual intent, and that the what, what's really going on, and that's what you're asking in all these cases, is what's really going on? In what way did this person get the payment, and why did they get the payment? Why did the corporation make a payment to this person? Because well, he, he, sir, surely he's entitled to try to prove that, and I'm still hung up on, on your assertion that he made no proffer on it below. Here's another portion of, of, the, of the joint appendix. Uh, the expert, his expert, he says, will further explain that if Boulware used — this is on page 97, bottom 97 — if Boulware used the monies for corporate purposes, the monies were not income to Boulware. Alternatively, the expert will explain that if the monies were not loans or advances, or if Boulware did not use the monies for corporate purposes, then as the controlling shareholder, the monies could be deemed a constructive dividend or return of capital to Boulware, which may or may not be income depending on whether or not HIE had earnings. Uh, that, that seems to me presenting the, 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 the claim that, that he asserts uh, he should have been given an opportunity to present. Well, that's the language on which I rely to show that he's, he's proffered nothing in basis in fact, Your Honor, in order to present a defense well, this to is the a, jury. This is a criminal case. He's presented the argument that don't you have the burden of showing as an element of tax deficiency that what he's uh, proffering there is not true. The government doesn't, it's clear under Holland, have to refute every hypothetical non-taxable source. The, the defendant and the Second Circuit's uh, Leonard decision and in Bach makes this clear. There must be some basis in fact. And this is just an expert proffer. He offered let, no let, facts. Let, let, let me get something, something clear. They, they, they wish to introduce evidence. They wish to introduce evidence. And you say, oh, well, the proffer's no good because there's no basis. So there was no evidence. I, that's, I don't understand that. They wish to introduce expert evidence that it could be deemed uh, as a oh, legal I matter. See. They and don't you have say there was there was no other evidence in the record that the expert could use for that testimony. Exactly, Your Honor. In fact, the Ninth Circuit's decision on Pet App Six makes that clear. Bullware presented no concrete proof that the amounts were considered, intended, or recorded on the corporate records as a return oh, of no, capital. No, that's not, that's not that's right. Issue. He says right here that it may or may not be income depending on a fact, not an expert opinion, whether or not HIE had earnings and profits for the years when the monies were obtained by Bullware. That's a question of fact. You look at the corporate books, you get the accountant on the testify. It's not an expert's view on what's legally relevant. But that fact goes to the second element. And what we're disputing is sufficiency on the first element, which is that it must have been a corporate distribution with respect to the corporation. Well, it's only relevant if it, it, the, the question he's trying to submit, whether they're earnings and profits or not, which will affect its treatment, is only relevant if it's with respect to stock. Right, Your Honor. And he presented absolutely no factual basis. We don't, we don't, we're not certain on that one, I think think, because of the cases he said before, would this be a possible holding if it was a distribution in respect to the stock? And if he had sufficient basis, then if there were no earnings and profits in the corporation during the year, it would be treated as a tax deficient, no tax deficiency, or it would be a return of capital. Insofar as the Ninth Circuit says something to the contrary, it is wrong. Now, we remand to decide whether the whether he intended to prove and produced enough to show they didn't have the earnings and profits, and also to consider the question of whether this was a distribution in respect to uh, stock. If you were, if you are going to remand, Your Honor, does the government have any objection to what I just said? It, well. 
if, if you're going to remand, Your Honor, all three elements should be open. The, the government's view is that he, that he, he knew that he needed, that the Ninth Circuit's rule required him to proffer on the first element, that in other words, that it was intended to be a constructive corporate distribution by somebody, that there was any evidence. This is not a high burden. He could have testified he thought it was a constructive distribution to him. Either he could have testified he thought it was a dividend, or he could testify he thought it was a return of capital. Mr. Monongo also testified, Your Honor, that it was not, there were no dividends during the relevant period. So there's testimony in the government's case that there were no dividends during the relevant period and no returns of capital during the relevant period. And he proffered no basis in fact to believe that what happened here, nor do, the, do any of the facts suggest that what happened here, under, unlike in our excessive salary case, Your Honor, where the government books it as a deductible business expense and one can infer from the fact that it's such an unreasonable salary that it must have really been in earnings and profits. Here, the, the facts of record are that — Well, please. There's no way to infer from the way in which he diverted these funds that these funds were with respect to stock. Thank you, Ms. Maynard. Uh, Mr. Klein, you have four, uh, ten minutes remaining. Your Honor, uh, I, I just want to make a few quick points. The, the phrase with respect to stock was never discussed in the district court at all. It was never discussed before the Court of Appeals panel at all. It was never the basis in the lower courts for the government's position that Mr. Bulware could not assert the return of capital defense. The government's sole argument from the time it moved to exclude Mr. Bulware's uh, testimony on this issue and his evidence on this issue to the time that it sought to prevent him from getting a jury instruction on this issue, the government's only argument was Miller, and in particular the Miller requirement that there be an intent, a contemporaneous intent, that the distribution be a return of capital. Do you think you even so? No harm, no foul. If in fact you hadn't proffered any evidence that would uh, uh, enable you to meet the uh, the uh, in respect of, of stock requirement. Now, now, what do you say to the contention that you hadn't proffered anything? I, I say several things, Justice Scalia. First of all, I think there was an adequate proffer at, at page 97 of the Joint Appendix. Second, at pages 62 through 66 of the Joint Appendix, Mr. Bulware specifically invokes <laughs> Truesdell and the, um, and, and the D'Agostino, no earnings, no profits. Well, at 97, were, are you saying that the expert would have brought with him uh, financial records to show earnings and profits and, 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 and basis? I, I, I believe because I interpret the government as saying there was nothing for him to testify to because there was no other, there was, the basic data was not in the record. Justice uh, Kennedy, there actually is a, a, a fair amount of basis data in the record, um, and I can quickly refer the court to the, to the portions of the joint appendix. Um, there's testimony, for example, that Mr. Bulware um, contributed a water company valued at roughly $1.7 million to HIE. That's at Joint Appendix 70 through 73, 116 through 23, 147 through 51. There's evidence that he contributed a coffee processing and wholesaling business valued at roughly $1.8 million. That's at Joint Appendix 123 through 27, 151 through 53. Um, that there was evidence that he spent money on coffee beans um, for — But those uh, are different. Those are whether that's a corporate purpose. I think the question here is, as I started, I thought that this expert was going to testify that there were no earnings and profits the relevant year. Having read it more closely, it seems to me that that is not the expert is going to testify. Rather, he's going to say, if there were no earnings and profits, then it is a return of capital if the basis is high enough. He's going to testify to that legal proposition. So my question is, is there any proffer of evidence here where the taxpayer says, I want a chance to show there were no earnings or profits? Justice Breyer, that's, there is it. That, that's how I read the portion of the Joint Appendix at pages 62 through 66 that I referred to, where Mr. Bulware invokes <laughs> that rule. Now, the, the, the problem here was that at no point from the very beginning, the government brought this issue to, to the fore by um, uh, filing a motion in limine. And the sole focus of the government's motion in limine was the Miller uh, contemporaneous intent rule. And that was the sole focus of the discussion. That's all anyone talked about in the district court. And so, Justice Breyer, the, the, the proffer is, is not as fulsome as I might hope, but it's clear that Mr. Bulware sought the opportunity to present earnings and profits and basis information through expert testimony. You, you recognize that he would have the burden if he says this corporation had no earnings and profits. 
so what I got was a return of capital. It would be his burden to show that? I, I think, Justice Ginsburg, that under the rule in Bach and under the rule that, that the parties proceeded under in the, in the district court in this case, whether or not it's the correct rule, uh, Mr. Bulware had the burden of producing some evidence, some evidence of the earnings and profits and the basis issues. Then the burden of persuasion. But coming forward, he had the burden of coming forward. Just the burden of coming forward with some evidence, even if it's weak evidence or not credible evidence, just to put the issue in play. Then the, the burden of persuasion beyond a reasonable doubt rests with the where, where is that evidence? If he has the burden of coming forward with it, I assume that means in the proffer. And where is it? It, it, the the evidence, Your Honor, is in the record where I have uh, uh, previously identified. Uh, Justice Breyer's point is that that isn't directed to that issue. It's directed to the issue of whether he was using the funds for a corporate purpose. <clears throat> Actually, Your Honor, it was it, it was the evidence that came into the record uh, came into the record more or less by happenstance because the district court had prohibited any evidence of return of capital. But and that evidence came in after the proffer, didn't it? No, no, it, it came in throughout the trial, actually. The, the, this, well, issue this was a motion in limine, which is before the trial. No, the motion, motion in limine was actually filed June 30th, which is, I think, the third day of trial. And the issue was litigated continuously throughout the trial up until, I think, July 11th, which was a day or two before before it ended. Um, this issue came up re- repeatedly throughout the trial. And so what, what, what did happen there? I, I, I've been looking at page 62 through 66. They're dancing around the issue. I, I, it's fair to say that they wouldn't be having these four pages unless they're thinking of return of capital as a defense. It, I, they don't actually say it. Justice Breyer, had the issue not been limited to the Miller uh, intent requirement, I believe that um, Mr. Bullware would have presented expert testimony that would, in fact, have um, at least put into play the issue of, uh, of earnings and profits and basis. Well, am I, am I right that all he would have to do in order to satisfy that burden would be this? He would have the option, which I gather he, he availed himself of, to show that, in fact, uh, the, 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 the funds were loans or, or non-income to him. And he would also have had the option to follow that by putting on the corporate accountant saying, this guy is a stockholder. That's what the corporate books show. In fact, that's not in dispute. Number two, the corporation didn't have any profits that year. Uh, Number three, if the money was diverted, if the money was corporate funds, the only thing left uh, under 301 is to treat it as a return of capital, and if, in fact, the funds exceeded his basis, to treat it as a capital gain. So all he had to do, in effect, to make the proffer, as I understand it, is to say, if you don't believe me that this was non-income, like a loan, then all I have to do is to put in the, the evidence uh, that uh, the, the corporation didn't have any, uh, any, any uh, profits that year, and Section 301 will take care of the rest of it, because you'll have to conclude that it's either a return of capital or a capital gain. Is that fair? Is that correct? I, I think that's basically right, Justice wait, Tudor. Wait, and, and, wait, and, and that, that, doesn't he have to show, still show, that it's with respect to stock? Yes, but... That, that one little element, he has to show the distribution was not because this was his girlfriend, but it was with respect to stock, and, and, and the record is, is empty yeah, of yeah, that. But, but does, doesn't, it, does, doesn't he suffice on a going-forward burden simply to show that he's a stockholder? I, I think so, Justice Souter, and I, I think... I mean, I agree with Justice Scalia, but doesn't, doesn't he make it at least to the point of putting the government to its proof by showing that he's a stockholder? That, that he's a stockholder and that he did not receive this money in any non-stockholder capacity, yeah. for example, for income or something like that. And I think, I think the record is probably adequate as it stands. Now, he was clearly a stockholder. He would not have received this money had he not been a stockholder. Well, it's kind of hard to say it's with respect to stock when the other stockholder doesn't get any. Just, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, the, the, um, the cases, again, are uniform, and we cite them, I think, at footnote 8 of our reply brief, that it, you can have a constructive distribution even if there are no corporate formalities, even if it's a disproportionate distribution, even if other stockholders don't share in it. And, again, that's a position that the government argues. What, what case, page on your brief did you say? I believe it's um, — the cases are cited, I believe, at footnote 8 of our um, reply brief. Let me just make sure. The reply brief? 
It's foot, I'm sorry, it's footnote three on page eight. Um, and there's a whole series of cases. And, and again, as far as I know, Mr. Chief Justice, there is no law to the contrary. And this is a position that the government itself argues in case. The issue is whether the government wants to uh, convict more, more, more uh, malfeasors or whether it wants to collect more money. And uh, the, the latter obviously prevails in the, uh, in the cases, but, right? But, but Justice Scalia, yeah. it, it seems to prevail only in this case. Um, and, and I would be astonished. Council argues that, that the government views Mr. Bulware as having stolen this money from the corporation. I would be astonished if the government would, would accept a theft deduction if HIE argued for it um, when, when the government seeks to collect these, uh, uh, the, the, the corporate income from HIE. Unless the Court has further questions. Thank you, Council. The case is submitted.